Welcome back to the Unchanging Education Podcast, Season 1, Episode 5. I'm going to try to wrap up the introduction of what I'm organizing into Season 1 here. So someone asked me to try to better articulate to you know a general audience, to people outside of education, because it can sound like inside baseball. But I'm talking about a schism within education and different types of pedagogy. Um, and I'm suggesting that there's a way that we think and talk about education that's ruled by pedagogy, specifically by student-centered approaches. But actually, in real teaching practice, there's still a healthy balance between student-centered and teacher-centered. And so while we only think and talk about education sort of out loud, um, especially at the sort of at the highest level, so to speak. Something like a teacher-centered practice exists only in secret, that it's not made explicit. Okay, so who cares, right? Well, um, I can try to put it into terms that people talk about education more broadly. And you will hear probably the, the most common distinction that you hear is between teaching kids how to think versus teaching kids what to think. So you might expect that uh, I've got my own bias and I think I think a lot of people are under the misconception that actually um, they would have these mixed up. They would have their lines crossed, so to speak. And I'll, I'll sort of explain my justification for that. So I would think of teacher-centeredness, TC, much more in terms of how to think and in terms of education. Whereas student-centeredness to me is more aligned with what to think, which is also referred to as indoctrination. We can also call it re-education. In that there is an ideology, a particular ideology at work here, and that it is ultimately political. So why does the average person care about what's happening in education? And I think increasingly probably the best answer, and, and you know, assuming that anyone ever listens to this podcast, I think that the, there's a, a real interest in getting politics out of education by opposing anything in education that is like indoctrination or re-education. So it's not so simple that teacher-centeredness is in education and how to think versus student-centeredness, which is a re-education in what to think. I don't want to be so reductive, but I, I do want to frame it as if we agree or if there is a, a segment of, of people in the field and people in the population who want to get politics out of education or very particular, especially new types of political interests. Where is the political activism and the highly charged rhetoric coming in? And another simpler question perhaps is, did education used to be like this? I think it's obvious that the answer is no. And this is why the rise and the dominance, right, and the, the institutional capture of student-centeredness, and actually in some of the, the ideologies and philosophies behind student-centeredness, if we think of student-centeredness as like a kind of a, a shield. Education was intentionally remade according to new ideas, new philosophy, and this new particular pedagogy, Took over, and I'm I'm I want to use that in past tense. It's not a matter of you know this is an ongoing thing that this new student center pedagogy is slowly taking over. No, it's long since already captured the institution of education. And again, I've I've kind of characterized the current state of education as suffering from the kind of a, a monoculture, a groupthink. I've used the, 
I've described it as a monopoly, um, as as an orthodoxy, as lacking a diversity of ideas, as failing to be heterodox. And I think that this this change, this new student-centered approach, has not been shy about the fact that it does see itself as political, and it intentionally wants to, like to change society and also to to basically to encourage or otherwise incentivize students to change society too. Um, and that often, I think, is presented as being very kind of neutral, where I go out and change, like, go out and make the world better in whatever way you see fit. But we need to be concerned about the, like, the potential for this power to be misused and that students are going out into the world to change it in ways that may, they may think that they've sort of conclusions or political positions they may think they have arrived at naturally or organically um, but you know there may be they may have only been exposed to certain influences and thus I mean as young and experienced people have a, a limited range a limited scope uh, of, of, of the whole social political economic landscape so if education has already been remade and if we don't like the result and if we're critical of of or if we're in any way unhappy with the way that things are, after having seen the change take hold, this student-centered revolution, this um, TVSE schism, then we have to unremake education. And this is why I've, one of the reasons why I've uh, titled this podcast Unchanging Education. Okay. So I want to wrap up uh, a loose end and try to bring it into some relief. I was talking about some kind of specific classroom instruction, teacher-student type issues, um, sort of at the micro level, as opposed to this macro level of you know philosophy and ideas. And, and I want to try to explain that a little bit more and to make the connection. So obviously we're seeing an imbalance in education and seeing that imbalance as a problem and that rebalancing student and teacher centered essentially de-emphasizing student centered and re-emphasizing teacher centered so one of the differences is some of the psychological assumptions and the way that we think about particularly in this case the way we think about the student so there are a range of motivations including different types of rewards and different types of punishments, right? Things that we encourage or discourage. And this is an important difference between TC and SC because in a, a student-centered, that is a therapeutic modality, it, there, there's a discomfort with, with, the, with not just with the words, but also with the practices like punishing and discouraging and even disincentivizing and so there, there's a sense that in student-centeredness we need to only focus on and only use and sort of restrict ourselves to uh, reward and encouragement and incentives whereas teacher-centered would not bind itself in such a way that sure there's reward and punishment there's things that we encourage and discourage there's incentives and disincentives so in this sense, you could say that teacher-centered is somehow more dynamic, but that student-centeredness would see itself as being more therapeutic. And so this could be another example of, I guess, of a, of a particular, uh, more of a smaller scale problem, or more what we would call a, a descriptive problem rather than a normative problem, just in terms of actual methods that we use, you know, in, in, the, in the relationships between teachers and students. Sometimes, you know, a lot of the new practices are sold to teachers as part of a package of being a good and reflective teacher. So, if students are not achieving in terms of academic performance and they're not behaving in terms of 
um, classroom conduct, academic performance or classroom behavior. The teacher is supposed to think, well, what am I doing wrong? As opposed to a teacher-centered framework that would that, that would certainly put this on, well, why are the students you know, doing these wrong things? Now, of course, we need some of that reflectiveness, right? Well, you know, if, if the students aren't, um, you know, performing, achieving, behaving, what, what am I doing wrong? Or, and, of course, we need to ask questions, right? Is the work too hard? Are they not trying? But a bigger piece, perhaps, is that if they have no fear of failure, okay, and no sense that there are any, even any possible punishments, if students experience themselves as being in a consequence-free environment, do we, even under the most optimistic or utopian student-centered set of assumptions, in a consequence-free environment with no fear of failure or punishment, will the desired performance and will desired behaviors manifest? Really, in the real world. Because sometimes, you know, when you talk with a student, you have to indicate the stakes. And that can also sound like the threat of consequences. If you X student continue this way, um, you know, you could, if you're failing assignments, you could fail the course, it could reflect on your transcript. Um, you could have to, if you don't earn the credit, you could have to repeat the grade. Basically, if you if you fall behind, you have to catch up, or there's there's a there's a risk of failure. And pointing this out might sound like threatening a punishment or a consequence, but it's I think a, a teacher center teacher would see this as these are just natural consequences. Like I I'm not actually imposing them at all, right? Uh, and to see this as being cruel um, and some somehow misses the point. Yet. If you know that you have to pass or promote every kid anyway, then you're actually better off not making false threats about possible failure if you can't follow through on it. So this indicates uh, a shift within education, and I think it, again, it shows us a difference between teacher and student-centered, and it has great implications for society and hopefully would be interesting to a general listener outside of the field. There's been a shift in who is responsible for learning. These five words. Who is responsible for learning? Under TC, the individual student. And so the TC classroom is characterized by the hardworking pupil. For SC, it's a different answer. Who's responsible for learning? The teacher. The teacher is responsible for ensuring all students learn all the content. And so the student-centered classroom is characterized by the hardworking teacher. And I'll get into some of these background and philosophical figures later, but this is because, because of a Rousseauian sense of the child that is idealized. And also, interestingly, a breakdown in what we might consider to be the parent-teacher alliance due to the rise of the child-parent alliance versus the teacher. And it, with this cultural change, it becomes too hard to quote-unquote blame the kid for not learning. Because we, I mean, we don't want to blame kids for not learning things, but we want to address the problem. We want to correct the a lack of performance or a lack of desired behavior at the level of the student change rather than always thinking about how can we change the teacher the classroom the learning environment of course we, we need to be open and flexible to lots of different kinds of changes but we also have to maintain and uphold standards and expectations too it's not easy so in it for, for TC, there is a controlled environment with individual tasks and objective or measurable metrics. And in SC, 
is a free and creative environment with group tasks and, in my opinion, basically vague rubrics. So, again, for student-centeredness, teachers are responsible for learning, for ensuring that you know all the kids are learning everything, which also means that students are not as responsible, right? That the responsibility that is a part of the student role declines. And so if students are not are not given the same amount of responsibility for, for themselves, for their own learning, there's this whole set of what I think of as being something like brain hacks. That like if kids don't want to learn, then you have to entertain them. Like you have to not only teach them, but motivate them to want to learn what you're teaching them. That you have to be entertaining, that you kind of brain hack in the sense that you even have to be so sophisticated in your teaching that you can get an unwilling or unmotivated student to learn, like even almost against their own wishes or against their own will. And that that there are, that there exist these expert techniques that can force an otherwise reluctant, unwilling student. And if if not all the students if not all the students are learning everything, then it's a sign of a bad teacher. And it does, in some ways, create a really an absurd standard um, for teachers. You might say, well, you know, it's it's if you say, well, it's it's too hard. Like for example, this the the level of difficulty and the content. It, it doesn't really meet the level of the learners. That's not somehow, it's not level appropriate in some way. It's extremely easy. Like you just, by even by indicating this kind of a, a weakness, like to another teacher or to a superior, um, you really are, in some cases, it's like you're, you're just welcoming. Someone can just crush you with the criticism that, that's something along the lines of, well, not for a sublime expert. And typically, the person saying that means, well, it wouldn't be for me. I could teach really, really hard things to really low-level learners because I possess these, these, these techniques. So what's wrong with you if you're not able to do it? And so you get this invention of a, new, a whole new vocabulary that is, I was talking about managerial, but it's psychological and managerial as well. So UDL, Universal Design for Learning, Differentiation and Scaffolding. I, I, I don't want to get too into the, the, the technical, you know, the, the definitions, but basically isn't, the, there's a whole set of ways to talk about making hard things easier in a way that try to get around or circumvent anything that sounds like, well, like, doesn't that all just mean diluting it or, dare I say, dumbing it down, right? Universal design for learning and differentiation and scaffolding. Are these just really sophisticated sounding ways, but it, it to what extent is it dumbing down by another name or or... If not, then why is this a mischaracterization? So there's a, a really, uh, in, in my experience, there's a, a powerful um, in, incentive, or there's a, there's a real urge to make really hard content easier rather than adopting easier materials. And so how do you make something that's hard easier for students? And again, I... I just keep thinking of this phrase that there's just this sublime expertise, right? That how do you do that? Well, the answer is often some form of, well, I mean, you, you do it like the way that I would do it, right? As the sublime expert. But it, and ultimately, it, it sort of comes down into something like making it, you know, into digestible chunks, right? And in that sense, I think of, I think the analogy of cutting their food for them kind of makes sense. But it's just hard to do. It's hard to, I mean, 
you would cut you might cut up your food for your for your kid or for your kids but in a classroom when you've got 30 people is that what i mean to what extent is that being implied in something like universal design and differentiation sometimes if students aren't uh, aren't achieving um, they're not their their academic performance their classroom behavior um, sure sometimes there have to be stern conversations especially with students who are disruptive or, or not trying but I think a lot of what we're seeing in some of these these new major pushes in education um, a lot of it is trying to compensate for some really powerful things that we've given up perhaps they've been they've been labeled as being teacher-centered and bad and so we're sort of taking them off the table at least again in the way that we think and talk about education not in the way that real teachers actually work and operate in the classroom with the door open or closed so consider that every other generation of teachers had the students fear of failure as their ally that there are consequences and that they are powerful not to you know not to terrify and frighten children with constantly threatening them that if you keep doing this then i'm going to fail you no but it that it exists in the background it's a reality that you can sometimes bump up against of course we must encourage and reward students when they're you know when they're doing great work but if we confine ourselves to just that and we remove consequences and fear of failure how do we compensate if we're taking something away what else can we add into the mix in order to maintain the same level of of overall achievement I'll come back to that question. And anyway, it, the, the, the learning itself for, for SC, it should be free, fun, creative, engaged, and active in, in terms of the experience of it. And how do you grade students on that, uh, on, on those kinds of um, criteria? Would you say, well, they're not having fun, being free, showing creativity, being active and engaged? that's just a teacher self-reporting themselves for being a bad teacher and when so much of the work becomes collaborative group social again it becomes hard to justify grades and impossible to justify failing grades and so what we don't want to see is that education that it becomes a consequence environment but only for one person that is the teacher and that along with a better balance of responsibility right that this this responsibility sure that the teacher is responsible for teaching and the students responsible for learning and that has always been the division of labor but increasingly we're seeing the teacher is responsible for the success of the teaching and the learning where the teacher is not just responsible for teaching, the teacher is responsible for the learning too. And so what, what, does, what responsibility is left over for the student? And if we don't make students responsible for learning, then they don't, they don't take it, right? They don't take responsibility. They don't take, you might say ownership, kind of another word for responsibility. And so too much of the responsibility has shifted onto the teacher and thus shifted away from students. Yes, individual responsibility and consequences for actions, both in terms of academic performance and classroom behavior. To some, that's going to sound like oppressive, teacher-centered cruelty. They would think of that talk of individual responsibility and consequences for your actions. Um, sort of in popular discourse someone who is uncomfortable with these with these ideas will just almost as a counterpoint they'll bring up the the term bootstraps 
right? Well, these kids should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? As um, as a counterpoint to this idea. And so TC here is teacher-centered, but also um, another uh, two other words that can fit into this same acronym, traditional or conservative. And so because it sounds traditional conservative, or it can be characterized as teacher-centered, TC, TC, th this would just be seen as bad, right? Oh, you're talking about individual responsibility and consequences for their actions. To be against that kind of, I, I guess, to be against that kind of old-school mentality, I think that that would be and to see it as oppressive cruelty, I think that's a very popular position in a student-centered paradigm. That, and, and thus, a tremendous focus placed on the teacher's increased responsibility. And I think even a celebration of a, of a consequence-free environment because it is seen to align with freedom and creativity. So many think, well, the teacher isn't in control. It's democratic. The classroom, the, the student-centered classroom should be democratic. So the teacher isn't really in control. The teacher is just one voting member of the body politic. Otherwise, it's, it's tyrannical, right? The, the teacher is like the tyrant. And again, uh, I think this tyranny, oppressive cruelty, things like demanding individual responsibility and consequences. But I think, again, I think that's the way that a lot of people think and talk about education, but really only in theory. So coming back to, to the, the different ideas, I think that a teacher-centered philosophy would assume would have a, a simpler set of assumptions. For example, there's just one intelligence and one literacy, and there's just learning, not learning styles. That it's much more singular. I said simpler. But under student-centeredness, everything is multiple. Okay, student-centeredness would state or stipulate multiple everything. There are dozens of intelligences, dozens of literacies, plural, and learning styles. That only that certain students can only learn based on the learning style that they have. Another important point about you know the words that are used and the the particular meanings they can they can take on in TC or SC. I think that SC is really intent on pushing words like active and critical, active learning, active learning strategies, because passive is bad, of course, and critical, which basically, for the most part, it certainly seems to mean good thinking, right? Whereas uncritical thinking, I mean, it, it's not really even thinking. Um, but I think there is, there is a problem here. And again, most teachers are going to say, well, what do you mean? How can there possibly be a problem with words like active and critical? These are these are words that we all universally have to celebrate. There's almost such a reverence for these kinds of words that it's it's almost like worship. Active learning, critical thinking. But I think th the problem is that there's a short hop from active learning and critical thinking into activism and critique. Critique in terms of just being critical of society and saying that society's bad. I think too many teachers probably fail to make the distinction between critique and critical and between active and activism, being an activist. And of course, we obviously see how these things fit together. right? If you're thinking critically about society, you're, I suppose you're supposed to be seeing that society is bad. 
And if you're seeing that society is bad, you have to take an active role in being a, or fighting against it and being an activist. So I'm suggesting that universally celebrating active and critical without any limiting principle is a problem. I think a limiting principle could be something as simple as, you know, I've talked a little bit about gratitude and appreciation for what we have. Oh, I mean, are you just celebrating the status quo? To some extent, yes. I think that that has to be a part of the total package. So it's so rapidly, this again, this from active and critical to activism and critique or critique and activism, it, it rapidly devolves into misguided critique and destructive activism. That we can have thoughtful critique and we can have we can have activism in society and it's of course it's it is a part of the democratic experiment and experience i think it, it probably just has to be targeted in a way i mean anti-capitalist activism i mean it's it's not really clear it may seem as though it has a clear object that it's against, but I would argue that perhaps it doesn't. Anyway, this is coming back to an idea that I touched on early that, that I, I need to come back to again, that education has to serve and benefit the society that it's in. Period. Full stop. If education somehow or for whatever reason is undermining that society, Right? The, the social stability of the society it finds itself in. If it corrupts the youth, so to speak, to borrow a phrase from Plato, it has to be reined in. And it has to be reminded that education serves the social good. And that while it wouldn't be reasonable for education to be completely against activism, for example... It also doesn't make sense for education to be against, you know, some image of a, of a productive citizen, right? A taxpayer, rather than an activist. There's no reason that education should be completely focused on producing just one or the other. Again, this brings me back to TVSC, that we need teacher and student centeredness, to some extent, locked into a kind of a, a struggle with one another. Right? Pushing back against each other, stopping the worst deficiencies or the, the worst excesses from manifesting. Anyway, education has to serve the social good, and education itself doesn't get to redefine that good. Right? Education has to operate within the existing reality of the society that it's in. And it's a very strange thing. I think we've stopped, we've almost lost the perspective to see it as strange. That education will unto itself redefine what a good society is or that, it's, that it is education's job to remake society. First, of course, as a, as a preliminary step, education has to remake itself. And then through this process of reimagining and transforming uh, to remake society and to remake students into a new and different kind of citizen. So we ultimately, certainly from a teacher-centered perspective, we don't want education to reinterpret its own mission into something that's radical or revolutionary. But of course it already has, using the past tense. So now what? If we come back to thinking of TC as being teacher, not just teacher-centered, but also traditional conservative, we can certainly think of something like for God and country would be seen as somehow um, a pretty stable, reasonable set of uh, like, like twin pillars in a sense. 
in terms of a, 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 a commitment or, or a sense of loyalty. And I, because if we want to make sure that the distinctions between TC and SC are very clear, there's certainly a sense that SC is anti-Western and that it has Marxist commitments. And so if SC is, is Marxist and anti-Western, then TC could be seen as, you know, for God, as opposed to being, you know, for Marx. And pro-Western, as opposed to anti-Western. And another part of this is that teacher-centeredness would be against any kind of race essentialist, race Marxist, or CRT, critical race theory type thinking, and would probably be more uh, aligned with something like, um, I think it's the, is it Chloe Valdery and um, Reenchantment. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll check and follow up on that. So this is just at the level of what are the, the, the deep ideological commitments and investments that dominate education. And certainly we need to be open to good changes. Um, but to what extent has, let's just say, let's just say historically, let, let, let's just take the liberty of saying that it's accurate that education has changed from being something that is more for God and country into something more explicitly anti-Western and, and pro-Marxist. Or when I say Marxist, I mean, you're probably also thinking of communism. I think that's, a, that's certainly a reasonable overlap. So the old shape of critique against excess takes a new shape, I believe. But this is an opportunity to get a better sense of how we should have thought about it all along that there are trade-offs and opportunity costs. So when we trade in God and country for anti-Western Marxism or Marxist anti-Westernism, anti-Western sentiment, what are we gaining and what are we losing and how should we think of it? It seems that we've always had, taking a deeper step back, this chariot with two steeds, it's a familiar analogy. Right, that we want one solid foundation for knowledge, curricula, and another, a kind of a vague sense in, in liberal education that really is about making the world better somehow. That not only are we invested in making and in, in producing citizens, but not out of the collectivist into the individualist, that a kind of a transcendent individual that there's always been, uh, not always perhaps, but this is certainly a part of our Western educational tradition. But it's the, the balance between the citizen and the transcendent individual has changed into being less invested in producing citizens and more focused on this, this transcendent individual who, for example, remakes or reshapes the world or society at least and also not only have we you know sort of increased the share in de-emphasizing citizenship and um, re-emphasizing the transcendent individual but we've also changed the character and the flavor of what that transcendent individual is or does and one way to think about this difference is that it's less in terms of the individual person helping others in, again, in something more like a Christian sense that's very one-to-one -one in terms of, you know, helping and serving others and, you know, making the world better in, in that small-scale way. Um, the transcendent individual now is much more, has been invested more in, like, large, broad-scale sweeping changes that well, you know, the problem with making, the reason we can't make the world a better place is that these these oppressive institutions and that we have to destroy these or otherwise take over and capture these institutions 
because they so it's still invested in a way in in the, the transcendent individual and human flourishing but they're just completely different ways to get there I have come to genuinely believe we ought not compel or impel kids to be change agents and world betterment actors or agents. No. Find your best place in the world and make that place in the world that you find the best you can make it for you and yours. Why do I think that? Because I'm callous? No, because I have no idea how to help students make the world better. There's often this question of, you know, what, well, what should teachers do? What should teachers be teaching? And I think that a, a simple answer is often better or best. And teachers should teach students something that they actually know. So we, we think of it in terms of the capacity of the teacher as well as in terms of the needs of the student. I don't know, I mean, I can't give you credentials or a proven track record of here is how I've helped students make the world better because it's too, it's, it's too difficult to gauge or to assess. So I don't know how to help students make the world better without, again, making the world better also means at the same time without making it worse, either in an offsetting way that's net neutral, or in a genuinely harmful regression, the way that changing things doesn't always make them better. So why would I center my own teaching around something I and every other teacher are hopelessly ignorant about? Ignorant not because we are stupid, but because the aim is so impossibly high we cannot see it. If I say my job as a teacher is creating the future world leaders of tomorrow, I mean, do, do I really literally believe that my students are going to become world leaders? Or just that they're going to, you know, exemplify leadership qualities in the world? Is, is that what, what I mean? Anyway, we need to, in some ways, we need to bring some of these goals and aims of education back down to earth. And if I am audacious enough to think I can impart my politics upon kids and thus, through them, assert my agenda out into the world. Well, this is not only a great offense upon the sacred trust of education as professional and mature and constrained. Strangely, this is, this is almost like, you know, it's almost like a form of asexual surrogate reproduction that I am going to multiply my ideas into the world. Um, I'm sort of planting all of these seeds of a particular political persuasion and I'm going to see them flourish in the world. And this is relevant in the context of a new younger generation uh, where again where their teacher training has been even more ideologically purified in student-centeredness a generation of childless teachers who instead of creating biological offspring seek instead political offspring it's a dangerous proposition compared to teacher parents with their own kids and thus little interest in the political leanings of other people's kids I've written here that we're better off with prayer in school than politics and prayer was seen as a form of politics that had to be removed from schools but I indicated this earlier I made a note that I didn't follow up on that it's important to note that there's a new kind of prayer that is manifesting in schools that has everything to do with you know how the individual should be in the world and that well is it a new religion or some people would say that some would argue that 
communism is a religion or perhaps an anti-religion. And of course, there's a there's a long and difficult history about this intensification, um, especially in the the radical '60s, and that again intensified further. That schools and education, um, not in in K to twelve as well as universities, that schools that the education system ought to address issues like poverty. It can't content itself just with being focused on, you know, traditional forms of education. But making the world-changing impetus into a curriculum is still historically, or relatively, new and untested and unproven. But it's not so new that we don't, that we can't make some preliminary judgments about it. Do we want a curriculum that is somehow motivating young people to be change agents to change the world? I think that a lot of people are not happy with the results of, of this. Well, but again, we can we can make a, a TCSC distinction that teacher center teachers thinking, well, we want our kids to become better educated. And again, you have to come back to this idea, TC and SC. How do they view the graduate? Right At the end, you become a smart and knowledgeable person and that you're a healthy, productive citizen. And to me, that seems much more teacher-centered. Whereas... It's not exactly clear, actually, what the ideal SC graduate is, um, but certainly some sort of activism would, would be a part of that. Not someone that is, as I indicated before, for God and country, but for something else. So I've already talked about what education should do. Education should do what it's good at. And, of course, any institution is tested over time throughout history. And what, through what tests has education proven itself? So this intensification of a, a radical or progressive politics in education is inextricably linked to the rise and the all-out capture of SC. And it is my contention, or thesis, that it is not serving us well. Rather, it fails to serve the essential spirit of education. So does this mean that I favor a TC traditional conservative approach to education? Do I dare? A recovery, a rediscovery, a revitalization or a revival of the most misunderstood idea in all of education is needed teacher centeredness this will not be easy because we now have at least three possibly even five generations of student-centered supremacy and so myths straw man attacks if not mere cartoons and hollow man assaults about teacher-centeredness abound. And let's just stick with three. Three generations means something like this. The current teachers' teachers, as well as the teachers who taught them, have all been sold on and bought into a specious schism in and about education that we now well, me at least, are called to undo, to unremake or unchange. So what are the great tried and tested truths about education? What are the enduring, if not universal and unchanging aspects? And how can we return to the wisdom of that unchanging education? First, we must get back to a stable duality of the rightful twin steeds of our chariot, T and SC.
It may at times seem as if my project is confused, but there is a tension here I accept. My goal is to revive a teacher versus student-centered duality in education, and my tactic is to assert TC over and against SC. So you might be thinking or asking, what do I really want? TVSC, yes, because despite my strategy in this body of work, I'm able to acknowledge insights from a sane, stable, student-centered approach. Of course, it has its place. I do not want to supplant one orthodoxy for another because that violates the spirit of inquiry. But I confine myself for the most part in this work to make the case for and to assert teacher-centered over student-centered because I think this is the best and simplest way to promote teacher versus student-centered, even if it seems to the listener to be in tension. So I'm articulating a minority view in actively arguing for teacher over student-centered, thus arguing against the dominant paradigm of student over teacher-centered, and by extension, I am passively articulating or arguing for a TVSC dualism. This may seem particularly confusing to any education student because of a persistent myth that actually teacher-centered is still somehow dominant and student-centered is the new way of trying to unseat it. But I think this is ignorant to reality, respectfully. Student-centeredness seeks to continue to advance itself as if it is still punching up against a dominant TC. This is simply not realistic. Anyone who cannot see the SC supermajority in education is being fooled. Don't be fooled. And if you don't believe me, start to identify yourself as a teacher-centered educator when seeking employment, as a new teacher, as an empirical test, right? So in your job interview, for as, as a recent graduate, if you think that teacher-centered is the dominant mode, tell a, a, a prospective principal that you're a teacher-centered teacher. You're not student-centered. See what happens. Every teacher knows to deploy these watchwords. Student-centered, active, engaged, differentiate, scaffold, universal design. And the way we speak of something affects how we think. And no one thinks of teacher-centeredness because no one speaks of it. Because all of your teacher trainers and ed school profs uncritically read Dewey and Freire. Probably going back three or four, maybe even five generations. Their teacher trainers and ed school profs uncritically read Dewey and Freire too. And so did their teacher trainers in education school profs, teacher trainers. And thus today we have the Voldemortification of TC. We do not speak of it, yet we know it is pure evil and must be destroyed because we know that SC is the one true way, only it isn't. So to paraphrase Mark Twain, the problem isn't what we don't know, it's that which we know for certain that just ain't so. And so this is not a call for more educational change. Not really. This is a call for unchanging education. I know that this sets up some confusion to call for unchanging education back into something akin to an unchanging education in terms of its perennial universality. Nevertheless, so it shall be. Because the new student over teacher centered change that also sees political change as good in itself is regressive. While calling itself progressive and stemming from a capital P progressive Dewey movement in education. Now, season two is going to be all about going through a literature review, going through all kinds of uh, great works and 
establishing the theoretical roots of TVSC. And so arguing for teacher over student centered to reinstate TVSC, this will likely be derided if not dismissed as yes, traditional, conservative, and even regressive or reactionary. But to my mind, it is genuinely progressive as counterculture pedagogy against orthodox SC hegemony. And the need to be more student-centered is not the cure, as many seem to believe. It is the disease. So why teacher-centered? For one thing, its focus, its, its emphasis is essential, not critical. The uncritical adoption of anything and everything called or calling itself critical is calamitous. To where the word critical in and outside education now rings hollow. Critical is just the new and improved way to say new and improved. It's neo-marketing. And it implies a myth or constructs its own creation for deconstruction. Myth. That before there was only darkness and backwardness. Let there be this new critical light. Student-centered. That it inherently corrects an uncritical passive acceptance of something because it is self-styled as quote-unquote critical. And it has everything to do with critical theory as well. So it actually, ironically, short-circuits real, robust, genuine thinking. You call something critical, people know that critical means that it's good, and so this actually stops critical thinking. Oh, it's critical, it must be good. That is itself a violation of genuinely critical thinking. Again, it's just marketing. But again, it only deconstructs the hollow man argument. Okay, this is a fallacy that's more severe than just a straw man. Okay, that it invents a false thing to attack. In this case, teacher-centeredness. What is teacher-centered? Oh, it's all about cruelty inflicted upon children. So we're against that. We're against cruelty to children. We're student-centered. So it sinks from not critical, but merely criticism, further into rank fallacy. Teacher-centered not only emphasizes the essential over the critical, but also perennialism over progressivism. Right, so essential and perennial, rather than critical and progressive. Critical, the pair of critical and progressive would belong to SC. So what, what we should be doing is continually renewing, as well as refining what is and ought to endure for all seasons. Rather than willing, if not eager, to burn down the is, to rebuild what could be, what might be possible. Pedagogy, as you'll see in season two, doesn't begin and end with Dewey and Freire. And to help us recall the great past, educators must come to know their own, the rich tradition of the ideas animating their own profession. Ideas, thinkers, texts that have been cast off and lost along the wayside. The romantic view of the child implies the cruelty of the teacher, a dynamic best expressed by Neil Postman. Postman makes this point about the utopian Rousseauian view we have, perhaps especially as teachers, that schools are places where malignant adults enact barbarous cruelties upon fundamentally good and innocent children. That this is just this is a, a caricature that takes us nowhere. It's just false. Actually, we see that, actually, TVSC would resist this schism where SC divides TV and SC and basically says one is good and one is evil. First, in the sense of 
the good child versus the evil teacher, right? That's the SC mythologization of TC, right? Once upon a time before student-centeredness arrived, all we had was TC, wherein we had all these good children who were up against these evil teachers. Again, malignant adults enacting barbarous cruelties, And how good and evil as something merely good and bad as descriptive became something normative in terms of good and evil. This makes us think about Nietzsche. And I think it's probably better to hold off on that for now. I do want to reiterate this point about how this the rise of student-centeredness did not occur democratically as though it were something that people in general in society wanted. I really think that it's something that the most radical thinking people in education wanted. And that ultimately, I think it is perhaps the, fun, the, the best example of the long march through the institution, which really just means it's an end run around politics. Their parents don't even know what's happening in schools until their kids are already learning it and that they're surprised to find it. Saying, well, this was never this was never pitched at the school board meeting. Where is this coming from? And the answer to that is, is very complex. So not only is this student-centered progressive education um, and entering around politics, it's far beyond that. And so let, let me come to Freire uh, again before finishing this off. That the oppressed must be made politically literate so they can speak the word and proclaim the world. Obviously, I've talked about a new or different kind of prayer, um, and that if, you know, if. if Typical, if you know, Christian type prayer has been removed from schools based on the fact that it is, I don't know, that it undermines freedom somehow by being too, um, that it sort of indoctrinates young people into a particular way of, of thinking or believing. Then I think the removal of this kind of really, um, this sort of Gnostic religion that again i think really cashes in on the like the multiplicity of student-centeredness in terms of all the different types of all the different learning styles for example and also all the different types of literacy that there is a very specific kind of political program behind this that we want to maintain for example something like clear and obvious like literacy means reading and writing and when we allow multiple meanings to manifest and specific meanings become diluted or watered down then people can just when they say literacy what they're talking about is a political literacy and what they really mean is thinking about the world the way that i do and again going back to this idea of not how to think but what to think in terms of not education but re-education is exactly the vision of a lot of the most important, most prominent pedagogues. So, for example, redefining more and more students as oppressed via something like intersectionality and basically wanting to get more students into thinking of themselves as being a part of some sort of a camp of victims or as being oppressed. This is a way to basically to try to get more and more change agents, right? By getting students to feel like they're oppressed and they thus need to get into the fight against oppression and become change agents, right? They need to be activized. And obviously this is a way for, you know, whatever group has the most power, um, political power, government, um, or or just amongst the teachers and schools themselves. And, you know, typically we know that educators tend to be left-leaning. 
This is largely a program that makes children politically useful for the party that controls education. And this largely is, this is the, the, the coming to fruition of the long march through the institutions. And one institution in particular, education. And this isn't just wrong based on a particular kind of politics. I even... I, I, you have to have restraint and control. Of course, you know, as the teacher, you do have a lot of power, and it's actually, it's probably strangely easy to influence the way that young people think, especially in to, to share your opinions and beliefs. But it's really important to have the professionalism and the, the restraint not to do this. But I actually think that even that notion of that professionalism, that restraint, even that maturity not to abuse your power right not to abuse the power that the other members in society have granted to you right that they have temporarily lent their children to you for for specific particular purposes that are for education not for re-education it's a betrayal of trust and I'm hoping in a way that it won't hurt all of education necessarily. That it can be seen that, that there somehow can be an upside to all of this in terms of bringing a different way to think about the problem into clarity. I think a lot of people right now are talking about the problem or the problems in education and I'm touching on a lot of those same problems too. But the upshot of this this general program, this idea, is that there is actually a, an extremely powerful way to push back. It's something like a solution to the problem right within our grasp. And I think that it is TC, teacher-centered. Right, that increasing the sort of market share of TC, bringing it back into education, rebalancing student and teacher-centered. I think that that is the most expedient way to make our schools back into something that we can have, have pride in and to put our faith into. Okay, well... Thank you very much for listening. This was a little bit longer, but I wanted to get to the end of my introductory notes so I can start um, getting into some of the other thinkers, some of the most important. I'm, I'm going to try to keep that um, chronological, starting with you know the, 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 the sort of foundational background figures and eventually getting up to you know things that are being... Uh, published in education or, or that are that are relevant to the conversation um, you know even in this year uh, 2022 okay well thanks very much for listening and to be continued in season two